Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash Milk Street to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash Milk Street. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. Thank you. 
This is Most Your Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. David Fairchild was a government botanist who traveled the world in the early 20th century in search of new foods, including mangoes, dates, avocados, quinoa, and kale. I chat with his biographer, Daniel Stone, author of The Food Explorer, The True Adventures of a Globetrotting Botanist. He was, you know, shot at with bows and arrows. He outran diseases. He caught typhoid fever at one point. So, you know, he was constantly outrunning threats, but also finding ways to flatter and respect people in other countries and cultures to the point where they would share their botanical knowledge and share their prized foods and plants with him. Before we hear from Stone, I chat with food historian Ray Amy about her new book, Stirring the Pot with Benjamin Franklin. Ray, how are you? I'm fine, Chris. How are you? Uh, I'm in a great mood because Benjamin Franklin is one of my favorite historical figures, at least on the American scene. But uh, your book really uh, makes me think that I didn't know him very well. And so here's my first question. Here's a guy who promotes frugality, right? He was a he was a vegetarian briefly at age 16. When he worked in a printing press, he got his colleagues to abandon beer and bread for breakfast in favor of porridge. And then he ends up many years later as an ambassador to France, living on an estate, uh, having seven-course dinners, a large collection of wine. He suffers from gout and retires in a 5,700-square-foot home. So he went from frugality, but did he really end up with frugality? I mean, it seems like he changed over the years. That's an interesting perspective, and I kind of think you're right. I think he um, there's an anecdote that he told about his wife, Deborah, which sort of encapsulates that experience that you just expressed. Uh, when they were young and, and uh, struggling in their printing shop, she went out and bought him a china bowl and a silver spoon to eat his morning porridge with, and he in his telling of the story, was just aghast that she had spent their money on these things that they really didn't need that were rich men's goods. And she said, no, I think you deserve to have this. And then he sort of allows us how more silver in China came into the household as their marriage survived. But as far as his mansion at the end of his life in uh, Philadelphia, he also had a position in society at that point and a position in the nation's identity that he did need to promote. And so he, when he returned from France, he added on to the mansion right. that he had begun years before because he felt he needed to entertain. So you found a bunch of menus of, of things that, that Franklin would actually eat or other people at that time. Pickles, I guess, were extremely important, as was vinegar, and there was a quote in your book, squeamish stomachs cannot eat without pickles. In other words, pickles were considered to be an antidote to the heavy meat they were eating. Is that right? That's how I interpret that as well. Um, you know, if you have fresh food and you want to keep it, you know, the best way to do it right. if you're dealing with vegetables and meats, you know, which is a whole other kind of pickling right. process, of course, is, is to pickle it to not only cut through the meats, but also to sharpen the appetite. Um, peas pudding, when I grew up, Makes it sound like I grew up in the 1820s, but peace pudding, hot peace pudding, cold peace pudding in the pot nine days old. Right. I didn't realize what peace pudding was until I read your book. What is peace pudding? Peace pudding is essentially the dried peas that you soak and get them kind of mushy, and then you compact them and boil them again. Although I cheated and used a microwave, the you know the idea that I 
do with the recipes in the book is to make them so that you can replicate the flavor and the texture of the food pretty easily in a modern kitchen. So anyhow, you, you mash these peas and, you know, would boil them and compress them. And then you have something that you can undo from the wrapping that you cook them in and slice. And it's really quite tasty. And, and to be clear, these are split, dried split peas that you cook Correct. like any beans. Yeah. Correct, um, yes. So so one of the most interesting things is you talk about electricity. Obviously, we all know the story about the kite and the key and the jar. But if you could take us through that science, the, is it the, the Leiden jar? Is that correct? Um, yeah, Leiden or Leiden. Yeah. And so how, how does that work? Well, just describe what it is. Well, picture a big glass vinegar jar, you know, one of those gallon-sized right. things. And in it uh, is sometimes water, sometimes not. It has a stopper with wires coming out of it. Sometimes they had metal around them. In Franklin's era, this was all unknown. Uh, Franklin was one of the leaders in exploring electricity. And you would charge these jars by spinning them and holding a cloth against them, and the, the electric charge would go into the jar. And then you had to be careful how you discharged it. So what you're building is essentially a battery, right. you know, like a battery right. for a car or a boat or whatever. And you want to be careful not to touch the wires prematurely because you will get shocked, as Franklin did. Yeah, he said he um, he got kind of knocked out. He didn't remember much about what happened, and he ached all over for quite a while. Uh, yes, because he had linked several of these laden jars together so that he could test whether electricity charges would, in fact, be a useful way to kill turkeys. Um, so, so here's what's really interesting about this guy. As I said, this is poor Richard's almanac on one hand, but when he wants to put together some provisions for the Pennsylvania Assembly for the Army— Here's the list of stuff, and I, I was really surprised. Tea and coffee, chocolate, biscuits, pepper, vinegar, Gloucester cheese, Madeira, Jamaica spirits, rum, I assume, hams, mustard, dried tongue, rice, and raisins. Th these are the kinds of things he's talking about provisioning the army with. And you, can you imagine that, you know, this would be uh, – maybe this is only for the officers. This is pretty rich exactly. fare, right? I mean – It was exactly for the officers. Yeah. And, and this, again, like everything that, that Franklin did was strategic. This was during the French and Indian War, and Franklin got persuaded to help provision the army because nobody else seemed to be willing or able to do it. So he put up his own money to ensure that the farmers would bring wagons and horses so that the tr the food supply could provision the rest of the regular troops. But he realized his son served in the British Army. And between the two of them, they figured out that the, um, the risk was that the junior officers were going to get restive and not do what they were supposed to do. They would you know, just get into trouble. So um, it had been the custom for junior officers to have their own saddlebag of provisions. And so Franklin, with the assistance of his son, William, put together a really nice picnic basket so that these Jeez. officers would be happy. I'd be happy today with some rum and Madeira and a, a ham and some mustard and some chocolate. And I like the Gloucester cheese, a, a nice touch. Yeah, so you spent a lot of time researching Franklin, uh, talking about, thinking about his food and cooking and kitchens, et cetera. Did you, what was the biggest surprise? What, what is it about Franklin or the food at the time that you thought was, well, like particularly modern or uh, particularly odd or interesting? I think what I found most interesting was the 
aggressive nature of Franklin's personality in seeking new things and sharing, wanting to share them with everyone. You can just kind of picture him saying, oh, I saw this. Let's, can, you need to know about this. Tell me about that. I need to know more about that here. And I found him to be so hospitable and generous as a host. You see him composing drinking songs and sharing a good time with with friends. And toward the end of his life, he said that that was what he enjoyed still. I mean, he's like a really good, rich stew. The more you, you know, savor it, the more you let it kind of sit around, the more nuances you find and are able to enjoy. Ray, thank you so much. Uh, Stirring the pot with Benjamin Franklin. Interesting recipes. Great story. Thank you, Ray. Thank you. My pleasure. That was food historian Ray Amy talking about her new book, Stirring the Pot with Benjamin Franklin. You can subscribe and listen to Milk Street Radio anytime as a podcast. New shows are available every Friday on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. Simply subscribe and get all our shows downloaded right to your phone. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moulton and I will be taking some of your calls. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready to go? I am ready to take those questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, hello, this is uh, Brian from uh, Tiverton, Rhode Island. Thank you for taking my call. A pleasure. How can we help you? I am calling about alternatives for ginger because of an allergy. I uh, love uh, home cooking and trying to get a little more Indian food, possibly some uh, Southeast Asian food in my diet, and want my guests to not have the feeling that they're missing something when I leave ginger out. And I'm wondering about a specific ingredient, amjur, which is dried mango powder, and wondering if you have any opinions about that or if you have any other alternatives for a ginger substitute. Well, ginger is spicy, you know. It's not hot, but it's spicy. Mango is sour, probably not spicy. So it would give you the fruitiness, but it wouldn't give you that, what you really love about ginger, which is that very sharp taste. And we are talking about fresh ginger, I assume, because you're talking about Indian cooking. Yeah. I hate to tell you, I really don't think there is a substitute. It is a little bit hot, you know, spicy. So, you know, maybe I'd add a little white pepper. (laughs) Yeah, that got Chris's attention. Yeah, that's that's close. White pepper's not fruity. I mean, ginger's sort of a double whammy because it's got that nice... I have a crazy suggestion. Yeah. Which is, as you would point out, most of my suggestions are crazy. Sichuan peppercorns give you almost a tingly flavor in the mouth. Yeah. And I wouldn't use much of it, but if you wanted to get that piquant, you know, gingery bite, because ginger also gives you that sort of funny mouthfeel, I would use a slight amount of, of Sichuan peppercorns, and that'll give you that part of it. For the fruity part, you know, you might use mango powder or something else for the fruitiness. Yeah. But I might combine Sichuan peppercorn with something fruity. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Actually, what? I agree. I would toast the Sichuan peppercorns first. They're actually not peppercorns like other peppercorns. No, but they have sort of an almost uh, citrusy smell. I think they're wonderful. I mean, it will be different flavor profile in the end. There's no way around it. There really is no substitute for ginger, but it might be sort of nice. Well, I love that suggestion. I will definitely give that a try. There's one other spice that you can also play with sumac, which is a ground red berry. And that has a sort of lemony, lemony, sour flavor. And in small quantities, that could also give you a little bit of depth of profile that's not ginger, but 
you might use that with the Sichuan peppercorns, but that's a really surprise ingredient that does a lot of heavy lifting in some recipes. You might just get a jar of that too. Sure. All right. Well, thank you, you so much for the suggestion. I'll pick up both. All right. Okay. Take care. Have a good one. Bye-bye. In a situation like this, yeah, the ginger really does bring quite a bit to the mix. But if you're allergic, you're allergic, so just leave it out. But don't tell anybody you left it out. There's plenty of stuff going on in Indian food without the ginger. That would be an answer I would give, which is, don't worry about it, man. Yeah. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? I'm Glenn, calling from Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. Hi, Glenn. How are you today? Doing great. Well, how can we help you? I am a senior who has gotten into cooking as a lot of my buddies have. Wonderful. I have no training. (laughs) And I'm baffled by vinegar. Not balsamic. I know what to do with balsamic. And when I steam my shrimp, I use a little apple cider vinegar, which works great. But when you get into red and white wine vinegar or herb vinegars or champagne vinegars, I don't know how you make a choice. Actually, that's an excellent question. My problem with vinegars is they're too acidic. I find, and someone said to me, and this is true, if you get a, like a 6 or 7% vinegar, just add some water to it. Well, And I, then that's what a lot of chefs do, is they just dilute it down. I think a rice wine vinegar that's 3 or 4%, I think, is nicer on the palate. But if your question is in terms of taste, yeah, I find very often that all those different flavors get lost unless you're making a vinaigrette. And so it doesn't really matter as much. But I agree with you. White balsamic, however, is sweeter and milder, which is nice. Regular balsamic is nice. We also came across a fabulous vinegar, calamansi. I think it's a bitter orange. And they make a vinegar out of it, which is to die for. I mean, that is, if you want to make a great vinaigrette, just use that. So I think that's an exception. But I think a lot of the other vinegars are pretty interchangeable unless it's a simple vinaigrette. Well, yeah. Well, do you have one that's kind of a basic you would go to? Yes, I would use a white balsamic vinegar as my basic go-to vinegar because it's not as acidic and is a slightly sweeter, and I would yes. use that. I'm at the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm the acid queen. I love the acid and vinegar, and so I would go for a sherry vinegar, which is very acidic, but it adds yes. just a wonderful sort of toasty flavor as well. It would be a great sauce, you know, sort of in a vinaigrette kind of form for fish or for vegetables or, you know, for salad, obviously. You're the acid queen? I love acid. <laughs> but um, I used to teach this class at Peter Kump's New York Cooking School. And one of the classes we had was to make a vinegar vinaigrette with the ratio of three to one oil to vinegar, which is what they usually tell you. Right. And the whole class did it. We all used olive oil, three tablespoons, and we all used a different vinegar including lemon juice as an acid. And it was such an eye-opener. So balsamic, you only need, like, say, a tablespoon to a tablespoon because balsamic is so sweet. I like the idea of your scientific test. Or use a little glass jar. I was just doing something with J. Kenji Lopez-Alt came to the kitchen. He uses a glass jar, and he has a little marker on the outside for the vinegar, then a marker for the oil. He puts the vinegar in a little Dijon just for emulsifying, and the oil and shakes it, and five seconds later you have, have emulsion. Vin- yeah, and what's fun about that's it, what I keep on my counter. And then you've got it for the whole week. Yeah. This is very helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Glenn. you. I know. This is Most J Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking failure or just a question, give us a ring, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Maggie in New York. Hi, Maggie. What is your question today? 
My question concerns grades of meat. I have a very good butcher near me that sells mostly prime beef. And then I also have an excellent supermarket where the beef is mostly graded choice. And I'm wondering how much difference it makes. You know, if I'm going to buy a porterhouse for my husband's birthday, I'll go to the butcher. But if I'm going to make a beef stew, does it matter? Prime has to do with the intramuscular fat. I mean, that's the most important thing about prime is that it's got fat running through it. And so fat is a conductor of flavor and also, you know, provides moisture. So I think you've already made the right choice, frankly. I don't think you have to get prime for stew. What do you think? No, well, first of all, we're talking about beef here, right? Yeah, no, because yeah. it's yeah. the only one that's graded. Right. Yeah. I would say that's true. There are two things to watch out for. If you get a, let's say, a beef shoulder roast, for example, which is what I would use for stew or pot roast, right. sometimes 40% of it's fat. The other issue is... As long as the stew meat is from a cut around the shoulder, for example, the front of the animal, you're fine. The only problem with stew meat in the supermarket is it's almost entirely from the round, which is the hind leg, which, which is, is rather awful. lean. It's just never use that meat for anything. Yeah, it's like there's no fat. There's no fat. There's no flavor. All. It has sort of a livery taste. It'll be tough no matter how you cook it. So a top blade roast, a shoulder roast, et cetera. And it doesn't matter what the grade is. Yeah, I agree with Chris. It's more where it comes from than whether it's choice or prime. And there's less and less prime around. Butchers have to pay to get graded for starts, and it takes more money to produce I think prime. it's under 5% or 2%. Even less, 2%. 2%, 2%, 2%. I think, 2%. is prime. Yeah. So um, if you buy beef for yourselves, you don't pay attention to that? Primer choice? Yeah. I would if I was getting a porterhouse for my husband's birthday. I think you're absolutely right. Well, that's only once a year. Yeah, no. Other than that, I don't pay attention. I look at it. If you go to Whole Foods, for example, to buy meat, uh, and you're looking for a skirt steak or sirloin tips or something else, you don't have a choice. They just have one. It's not like you have three options, choice, prime, et cetera. Right. It's only when you're dealing with a steak, really, right? Right. You're going to see this whole grating thing slowly slip away. I no, mean, but if you're going to grill a steak or use a cast iron pan, I would get prime. Absolutely. Because it'll make a big difference. It's cooked quickly, and the quality of the meat makes a big difference. If you're going to cook a long period of time or it's a thin cut, don't worry about it. Yeah. Okay. I will say this one thing about skirt steak. Let's just say skirt steak. Sometimes I see that there's absolutely no fat on it of any kind. I try to get some skirt steak that has fat on it. And this is not what you give your husband for his birthday because it's not special, really. And sirloin tips, half the time, are not really sirloin tips. What are they? They're a top sirloin or a bottom sirloin, but the tips have a very coarse texture to them and a very dark red color, and they're terrific. But if you don't see that really coarse texture in the meat and that dark red color, it's not sirloin tips. Okay. I think you've got good instincts. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with author Daniel Stone. I'll be speaking to him about the food explorer who brought over 200,000 exotic fruits and vegetables to America. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. 
Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. 
This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. At the turn of the 20th century, immigration was in full swing, but we're not talking about people. We're talking about food. Botanist and food explorer David Fairchild was searching the world over for new foods and found 200,000 of them. Daniel Stone's new book, The Food Explorer, recounts Fairchild's amazing expeditions, including the foods that made it into the American diet and those that did not. So let's start at the beginning. This is a search for plants starting in the late 19th century by a guy called David Fairchild. Who was David Fairchild? David Fairchild was a young man of Kansas who grew up in the 1870s, right after the Civil War, surrounded by farmers. Uh, his father was a farmer, and he really had two passions. He loved plants, and he loved to travel. And he combined the two of them to become a special agent for the USDA and travel all over the world uh, as a food spy to find exotic crops that he could introduce back to American farmers. Now, it used to be that to uh, grow a plant, you'd start with a seed, but at some point someone figured out that you could use cuttings. So he was bringing back seeds and cuttings so you could graft the cutting to a rootstock and more quickly get to the final product, right? Exactly. Seeds are very perilous, very risky. Sometimes they don't sprout. Sometimes pollen makes them sprout a little different from their neighbor. So yeah, grafting was really one of the revelations of the ancient Romans, but that's how we produce most of our food now, especially things like Granny Smith apples or Kling peaches or anything that's got a name that comes with it. Fairchild was traveling the world finding seeds, but really he prioritized cuttings and, and taking cuttings of trees and bushes, shrubs, anything that he could bring back and effectively clone to reproduce at great scale. Now, this wouldn't have happened without another guy, uh, Barbara Lathrop. So this guy's a millionaire. His father was, I guess, in real estate, whatever, living off that fortune. He meets him on a trip to Italy on a boat. Uh, and this guy basically underwrote his life for many years as he traveled around the world, right? Yeah, Fairchild was enormously lucky. On his first trip across the Atlantic Ocean, he meets on the boat this this man, Barbara Lathrop, a fabulously wealthy, globetrotting playboy bachelor who has financed his travels on his father's real estate fortune after he invested in Chicago real estate after the Great Chicago Fire. So Barbara Lathrop is wealthy, constantly in motion, and extremely bored. And so he sees this young man, David Fairchild, who has these dreams of seeing the world. And he says, I'm going to invest in you. I'd like to give you $1,000, which is a lot of money, to start your travels in hopes that you can apply your scientific background into something resembling philanthropy for the United States government. Except Barbara Lathrop liked to move quickly, whereas David Fairchild took almost a year once he got the $1,000 to get going. And, and we were supposed to go to, uh, I think, the Far East on that first trip. It took him a long time to get there, right? Right. Uh, the two of them traveled together for a fair amount of time. But you're right, it was a very awkward pair. Barbara Lathrop is well-traveled, well-spoken, very fancy, you know, plump mustache. David Fairchild is this awkward, stuttering boy from Kansas, never has seen the other side of the world. So the two of them, yeah, there's, there's growing pains. Fairchild wants to stay behind and study every plant. Barbara Lathrop wants to keep moving, stay right. in motion, constantly moving. Uh, and they, they almost, you know, call the whole thing off. 
but Fairchild slowly gets more of a worldliness about him, so they they remain as a team. So th- there's an element of, you know, Jason and the Golden Fleece here, right? There's a real charm and mystery to this. And, and let me just read a sentence from your book, The Food Explorer. Seedless lemons on the island of Poros, walnuts with shells almost as thin as paper on the island of Naxos, and the famous Valonia oak on the island of Crete. I mean, it sounds like, uh, you know, Arabian Nights or something. It's this, this <laughs> mystical plants out there, and he has to go around the world to find them. It is extremely charming, and also at a time when, I think you say in the book, on the average dinner plate in America, you might see up to 12 different vegetables, right, or items. And there are hundreds, if not thousands, of edible plants that might actually come to America and end up on that dinner plate in years to come. Yeah, I mean, this this was an era when American meals were very bland. People hadn't tasted exotic, novel foods, especially ones that originated overseas. So yeah, this is kind of like a treasure hunt for Fairchild, those illustrious kind of even rumors of what exists in other countries that he has to go and investigate and search out. Um, And then, you know, if he finds them, he has to bring them back and introduce them with seeds or with cuttings in hopes that farmers kind of take a liking to them and grow them to create a market that then eventually people will pay for these foods, too. But yeah, he was he was very much a world traveling spy diplomat, you know, variations of the two in search of these illustrious crops that he heard about in all corners of the world. Yeah, and we don't remember today, I certainly don't, uh, but, you know, apples come from Kazakhstan, bananas from New Guinea, pineapples from Brazil, oranges and lemons from China. So what we consider to be everyday items in the produce section of the supermarket came from all over the world, and that's exactly where David Fairchild went. Yeah, I, I like to say that, you know, our food came to this country very much like our families as immigrants. Almost nothing we eat is from here. And you mentioned apples, bananas, citrus from China, pineapples. There are very few native crops to North America for a couple reasons, many of them natural history and kind of the the civilizations that were here before we were America. But, you know, cranberries, some varieties of tomatoes, sunflowers, and a couple varieties of strawberries are really the core of North American crops. Everything else came as an immigrant. But he had some big successes and some failures, avocado being one of the big successes. Uh, and I, the book is just full of these little tiny facts that I love. The Aztecs called it avocado, which in their language meant testicle. Yeah. <laughs> which I just thought, like, well, that's great marketing. You know, you can saw a lot of those. It, the other one I liked was, was quinoa, which was not popular. 1898 Peru. And, and this is Fairchild describing quinoa. It was crunchy and fine and had a confusing glow, which I thought, which which is actually kind of true. It's kind of weird looking, right? I mean, yeah. And that, I mean, it gets at the question of why things catch on when they do, right? Quinoa is not a new crop. It's been around for centuries. An American diplomat, Fairchild, discovers it a hundred years ago, but no one really knows what to do with it, right? Is it a grain? Is it like rice? Do you eat the leaves? Kind of like spinach. It's it's not easy. It's not a slam dunk in terms of, of conveying uh, its utility. So it kind of languishes for a century. And then, you know, 10, 15 years ago, with nutrition research, with new marketing, it caught on. And that's true for a lot of crops that have been around for centuries, for millennia, that suddenly have their moment uh, in pop culture. He also found some interesting customs. In Greece, around 1900, he found that grapes were put on dried manure, to dry in the sun because the manure absorbed moisture 
uh, effectively. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then he said – he also talked about – or some explorer talked about Fiji and said that they actually did like the taste of, of human flesh, like pork but more tender and flavorful. <laughs> yeah, I, he was constantly uh, traveling. I mean he visited more than 50 countries, all of them by boat. Many of them like like Fiji or, you know, islands in the in the South China Sea that had never seen a Westerner before or a white man before. And he was, you know, shot at with bows and arrows. He outran diseases. He caught typhoid fever at one point. But yeah, I mean, it was his ability to kind of bridge those cultural divides that were a lot further than they are now. And you mentioned Fiji. I mean, he goes in 1896 right at the end of the era of Fiji being known as the Cannibal Isles, because, you know, that's one way they kept their population stable by being cannibals far longer than in other parts of the world. So, you know, he was constantly outrunning threats, but also finding ways to flatter and respect people in other countries and cultures to the point where they would share their botanical knowledge and share their prized foods and plants with him. Yeah, you tell the story, most interestingly, about hops in Germany, right? Because Germany was known for its beer, still is. They thought American hops, which are used to make beer, were inferior. So he went over and he had to cajole some samples, right? Out of, uh, and by being friendly and being very open about what he was up to. Yeah, this is 1901, and he is sent by the USDA to Bavaria to find the best hops. Everyone knows that Germans grow the best hops and brew the best beer. American beer is not great in those days. So Fairchild goes over and Germans know they have the best hops. So they hire guards to, to guard the fields at night. And Fairchild probably could have, you know, sneaked in some cuttings after the guards fell asleep, but he decides to be a diplomat. He decides to flatter them. So he spends the evenings in the beer hall with the growers. He buys a plaque for one of the growers' house to commemorate the site of, you know, the best hops in the world. And eventually it works. Yeah, one of the growers comes to his door at night. It's raining and knocks and says, I think I know what you're after. I think you want some hops. You can't tell anyone, but go to the next town and I'll ship you a shipment. You should get them and then you should leave. And he did all those things and Fairchild gets the cuttings and he sends them back to, to America and those hops really help boost the hops and beer brewing industry in the U.S., certainly over the next two decades before many of the fields are plowed up because of prohibition. Um, Baghdad gave us dates, right? Southern California owes a big debt to Baghdad. Yeah, Fairchild, he had a very difficult time getting up the Persian Gulf to Baghdad. He, He marches much of it on foot, finally gets there and sees what was for many centuries the the crossroads of civilization. I mean, this was really an ancient site of culture and agriculture. As a result, Fairchild picks up several dozen varieties of small date trees that he wraps in mud and in clay so that they'll be uh, alive when they get back to D.C. They're sent to Southern California, which is a similar climate to the Middle East. And they're grown there and really transforms the economy in Southern California. It's because of those dates that the area was allowed to grow its economies and out of out of respect, you know, one of the towns in that area was named Mecca, another was named Baghdad, and the the high school mascot of Mecca, California, in those days was the Arab, and not out of some sense of early twentieth century cultural racism, but out of genuine respect and admiration for this part of the world that gave them their their cash crop. 
Anything else in the research you came across that was really surprising to you or a little fact that popped out? You know, I was always a little surprised at how difficult the actual botanical preservation was. So, you know, say you're on the other side of the world, you're in Egypt, you come across this great cutting, you have to preserve it. Like, how do you pack it to to spend two months on a steamer across the ocean? And he always experimented with different methods with, you know, with damp moss, with clay. I actually spent a few months in Japan writing this book and I came across a cherry blossom tree near where I was staying and I thought it was beautiful and I was going to you know, take some cuttings to bring back. This is highly illegal. I don't advise it, but I, w- I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do exactly what Fairchild did just, just once. And so I took some cuttings, you know, I pack them in my suitcase. I get on the plane that same day. In 15 hours, I'm back in my apartment in Washington, D.C. I put them in some rooting hormone. I put them in potting soil. And three weeks later, they, they died, right? They didn't take. Um, <laughs> and I had every trapping of, you know, modern technology and air travel, and I couldn't make it work, uh, which just to me underscores doing this work a century ago, you know, how perilous it was and still how, how successful in large part he had been. Dan Stone, thank you so much. Uh, the Food Explorer, the story of David Fairchild and how we found all these exotic fruits and vegetables from around the world. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was Daniel Stone, science writer and author of The Food Explorer, The True Adventures of a Globetrotting Botanist. You know, history is often more compelling than fiction. In The Food Explorer, I found that the original concept for the Statue of Liberty was a 90-foot-high Arab woman on the Suez Canal. Avocados are named after the Aztec word for testicle. The original Coca-Cola contained 2.5% cocaine and was invented by a morphine-addicted pharmacist. The rest of the world may be mesmerized by child wizards and lightsabers, but I'll stick with history. It's not only mind-boggling, it's actually true. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. Who doesn't love the English? The English are eccentric, interesting, and they always have desserts called puddings because that's, in fact, was their tradition. They steam puddings. Well, one of the desserts people probably don't know here is Eaton Mess, right, which is from the school Eaton. And it's whipped cream, it's berries, usually strawberries, and some broken up meringue cookies. The origins of that recipe may be because there was a picnic basket and a big dog sat on it, and they made a mess of the whipped cream, the berries, and the cookies. In any case, it's a very, very simple summer dessert. It's light and fresh. And we thought we'd adapt it to uh, Milk Street. And so what did we do? So, Chris, we took the basics of this dish and just sort of elevated them a little bit by adding some elements at each step to enhance the flavor and the texture. So the first thing is anything with mess in the title should probably not be super fussy. So we're not going to make our own meringue cookies here. We found that the store-bought cookies work just as well. But what we did was run them under the broiler for about 30 seconds. That added a little bit of almost like toasted marshmallow flavor. It also made them really crispy, which is good because Mm. they're going to get mixed in with cream and berries. We just didn't want them to get too soggy. Much like when you toast marshmallows, if you get too close to the fire, they burn up. You really want to keep an eye on these when they're under the broiler because they go from good to bad really fast. Sounds like Daedalus. I like my Greek myths. So strawberries here in the States don't have a lot of flavor. So what do we do about that? We chose not to use them. Oh, well, good good idea. (laughs) We're using raspberries here. They're more consistent year-round. We also liked that they were a little tart. 
Uh, this is a pretty sweet dish, so we wanted to add a little bit of tartness here. We use them in two different ways. We use them fresh, whole, and then we're going to make a puree with some, a cooked puree. So mash them down, cook them, add a little bit of lemon juice, and then we get that raspberry flavor throughout the dish. Now, since this is Milk Street, I would assume we added some spice or some unusual ingredient just to trick up the flavor. You would be right. The last element of this dish is whipped cream. And at Mill Street, we always love to add sour cream to our whipped cream. We love that balance of the richness and the tanginess. But we also added some cardamom. This is a common Middle Eastern ingredient, especially in fruit desserts. So it added a little bit of something special. It almost made the dish slightly more elegant, even though it's a mess. Oh, the Martha Stewart (laughs) in Milk Street. Lynn, thank you so much. And finally, was there anything else we added? So we added some toasted pistachios. Again, that's a common Middle Eastern ingredient in desserts. And this gets either mixed together in a big bowl, like a mess, or what we like to do is make it a little more elegant and put it in a glass and layer it like a parfait. You're becoming so elegant. Aren't I? I? This is the new Lynn. So we have whipped cream with some sour cream and cardamom. We have raspberries. We have a puree. And we have the toasted meringue. Pretty simple dessert. Great summer dessert. And very Milk Street. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. You can find this recipe at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions and dilemmas with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to open the phone lines and answer your calls about cooking or anything else you'd like to know about with my co-host, Sarah Malton. Sarah, how are you? I'm great, Chris. I'm ready to take those calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name's Joshua. How can we help you? Thanks for taking my call. I really appreciate listening to your show. I have a question not about technique, but just to learn a little bit more about both of you and the flavors that you like. One of my favorite things to do is just throw a meal together while I'm cooking a pot of rice in the rice cooker. And I was wondering what you two would do. So to each of you, what accompanying either vegetarian or vegan, because I'm lactose intolerant, meal would you make while the rice is cooking using one protein, two to three veg- uh, vegetables, and spices and aromatics as you see fit? My answer would be a, I do a quick soup with some spices in it, Vegetables, I would use a little broth with that as well. Lots of greens in it, uh, like watercress or cilantro to finish. And then I would put rice in the soup. In Thailand, there's another recipe for a rice soup where you have leftover rice. You have broth and you have condiments, you know, like shallots or garlic or spices, white pepper. Put some greens in it. And it's better when the rice has been chilled overnight uh, with leftover rice. Or stir-fried rice, again, with leftover rice. But I, I would say a simple soup and add the rice to the soup, and that's a classic Eastern dish. Sarah? You know, I did this um, Korean rice bowl. That involves uh, tofu that you uh, get firm tofu and you weight it down, you know, for about an hour to yep. get out the excess liquid, and then you brown it. You cut it into planks and you brown it. So that's your protein. And then um, sautéed carrots, sautéed shiitake, uh, miso sesame sauce, and I don't know, if you're going vegetarian, do you eat eggs? I do eat eggs. And a fried egg. Everything's better with a fried egg on top. Yeah. Yeah, much better. True. And then, um, you know, some sliced scallions as a garnish, toasted sesame seeds, you know, some hot sauce, you know, Korean hot sauce, whatever you like. But I like mm-hmm. to add the miso sesame sauce, too, because it's just interesting. So the, I love doing that. So, yeah, that's what right. I would do. I guess your question, how do you cook your rice? Do you use a rice cooker, just a saucepan? What do you do? So last year I got myself a rice cooker. It's one of my favorite low-budget kitchen appliances. Yeah. Do you guys have a go-to rice? Like I do long grain basmati is my favorite. I love basmati. I like jasmine is the one I go. Mm -hmm. And I actually cook rice in a clay ceramic Japanese rice cooker. It's a bowl, terracotta bowl, Mm -hmm. with two covers, an inside and outside cover. I've heard you talk about that on the show in the past. That seems like a... Yeah, I'm, I'm, in, I'm curious about that. Yeah, rinse the rice. You put a little bit less water than rice in the pot. Let it sit 20 minutes and then turn the heat on. After eight or nine minutes, it'll start to steam. Steam it for two minutes. Take it off the heat for 20 minutes. It's done. I find, and I've used rice cookers, it makes much better rice. How much is this Japanese ceramic thing? $60, $70. Okay. It's a little more work, but it's great rice. Yeah, and rice is one of my favorite staples, so it may be on my birthday list this year. Thanks for calling. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. Thanks. Take yeah, care. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.
Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Andy Marzano from Media, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia. And uh, what is your question today? So my oven at home, it's got shelves. And my question is, is the upper shelf, because heat rises, or the lower shelf, closer to the heat coil? So which area of the oven is hotter? Well, it somewhat depends on your oven and where the elements are. But for me, the general rule is if you want to brown the top, you put it in the top part of the oven. If you want to brown the bottom, you put it in the bottom part of the oven. And if you want it to cook evenly, you put it in the middle part of the oven. Chris? Very concisely stated. I would put the lower rack for pies because you want the bottom crust to crisp up. I would use the middle rack for most baking, you know, cookies, cakes, etc., quick breads. But oddly enough, I would use the top third for pizza. I would preheat a cooking a baking steel, preferably, or baking stone. Because very often, if you use the bottom of the rack, which we used to, the top didn't get cooked properly. It, it, it cooked too much. The, the crust got overcooked. So uh, I would use the top third for pizza. But almost everything goes on the middle rack, except I said pies on the bottom and pizza on the top third. That's wild. I never thought Well, you that. have to use a pizza stone or, okay. or a steel for that. Yeah. But I tend to use the middle rack for most of my baking. Thanks for, your, yeah. thanks for your consideration on taking my call. Sure. Okay, Take sure. Care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. Here's a tip for enhancing the flavor of sautéed onions for soups, stews, and sauces. The trick is a common ingredient used in southern Indian cooking, black mustard seeds. They add depth without any mustard flavor at all. The formula is one teaspoon for each onion you're sautéing. By the way, brown and yellow mustard seeds also work well. Here's a question. Why does some pepperoni on pizza curl around the edges and some don't? Next up is J. Kenji Lopez-Alt, author of The Food Lab, with the answer. Kenji, how are you? I'm doing good. Uh, so what insane bit of culinary science uh, are we going to talk about today? <laughs> um, well, we're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects, um, pizza, specifically pepperoni pizza. And uh, the question is, why does pepperoni curl? And, you know, sometimes you get pizza and you get those flat-laying pepperoni slices. Like if you go to a normal slice joint in New York, you're going to get those flat-laying pepperoni slices. But if you go to a good place, you're going to get pepperoni that kind of curls up into little cups. And those are my favorite kinds of pepperoni because you get that kind of crispy edge around the top. And then you get like a little pool of red grease in the bottom of each one. Um, my, uh, my friend Adam Kuban from uh, the blog Slice, um, he calls them crispy grease chalices. Um, which is, I think, a good way to describe them. But the question I had was, why does sometimes pepperoni curl and why does sometimes it lay flat? So this this actually turned out to be a way more interesting question than I thought. Um, it's, it's not just different types of pepperoni? Well, it is just different types of pepperoni, but the question is, why do some types curl and which types are those? So, you know, initially I thought maybe it has to do with thickness you know like if if you're if you have a right. if you have a slice of pepperoni on a pizza it's heating more from the top than it is from the bottom because the bottom is insulated by the cheese and the and the dough so maybe the top is shrinking a little bit more than the bottom and that's causing it to curl and then i thought maybe it has to do with the type of casing so i, I tested both of these things um you know the thickness you i tried it by by cutting pepperoni to various thicknesses and putting it on a pizza i found that it doesn't really make that much difference at all how thick it is until you get to the point where it's so thick that it can't even cup anymore i also tested it with 
different types of casings. And I found that the ones with natural casings actually are the ones that curl um, mm. versus stretchable or collagen casings. But the interesting part is that if you take a natural casing pepperoni and you peel the casing off before cooking it, it still curls. Now, wait, wait, wait. So I, I just like to understand how your mind works. So you had a natural casing and it curled. Right. And then it occurred to you to test it without the casing on? Well, so at that point, the hypothesis I had was that, all right, the casing maybe shrinks a little bit more than the actual meat inside, and therefore that's what causes that curling. It, cu- it causes it to cup up because the casing shrinks and it has nowhere to go, so it causes the pepperoni to cup up. Yeah, so then I thought, okay, well, how can I test that hypothesis? Well, let's just remove the casing and <laughs> see what happens. Of course. And it turns out that the pepperoni actually still curls even without the casing. So. So then I started asking, why does this happen? Well, I called up a guy um, who worked for um, Ezio, a pepperoni company, and talked to him about it. And he told me that the actual reason, and this is something that pepperoni companies do actually do a lot of research on because they some people want pepperoni that lays flat, some people want pepperoni that curls, so they have to know how to do that, that differently. And he said the main thing actually is the ratio of the size of the tube that they use to stuff the pepperoni to the size of the casing hmm. um, and how well the casing stretches. So if you take a stick of natural casing pepperoni, um, natural casing doesn't stretch very well compared to a collagen casing or, or like an artificial netting, which they sometimes use. Um, if you cut a stick of pepperoni in natural casing lengthwise, you can actually see there's a sort of U-shaped pattern in there. Um, and that's because the meat comes out of the stuffing machine. It pushes out into the center of it, and then it kind of sticks to the walls of the casing. So the inside ends up getting pushed down more than the outer edges do. So that the sort of U-shape that you see in there, what, what you're seeing is really a difference in, in meat density. So natural casing pepperoni is actually stuffed a little bit more densely around the edges than it is in the center. And that's what causes it to actually curl when you cook it. And the neat part is that there is a natural way for pepperoni to curl. So if you take a stick of pepperoni, cut it into slices, and put those slices on a baking sheet and bake them in the oven, they're all going to curl in one direction, meaning that you can take a piece of pepperoni, flip half of them upside down. The ones that you flipped upside down are going to curl down, whereas the ones that you left right side up are going to curl up. So why is it that the amount of stuffing around the edge of the casing, Mm -hmm. if it's more tightly packed, why does that result in curling? So when you cook a piece of meat, whether it's a steak or a roast chicken or whatever, um, when you cook it, it loses moisture and it shrinks. So on a stick of pepperoni, because there's more meat on the exterior, it actually shrinks more than the center does. So you end up with an outer edge that shrinks a little bit more than the center does. Um, and that's what causes it to curl. So, so one more time. Is it just the size of the nozzle used in the stuffing that does this? Or is there something about natural casing versus other casings that causes the exterior to be more tightly packed? It's, it's, it's both. It's the size of the nozzle compared to the final circumference of the pepperoni and the way in which that casing stretches. So a natural casing, it sort of has a fixed size and it doesn't stretch very much beyond that size. Whereas a artificial netting or a collagen casing will actually stretch quite a bit. So when you put it into a natural casing, you end up with this disparity of, of density. And so if you're a pizza restaurant... You could order pepperoni. I want the curly pepperoni or I want the flat pepperoni. Yes, you can. I don't know why you would ever order the flat pepperoni, but yes, you you have a choice. As as a consumer, you also have a choice. You can tell the difference between natural and artificial casings uh, because artificial casings are going to be perfectly straight, whereas natural casings are going to have a slight curve to them because pigs are not 
perfectly straight. So here's a question. So when you go down these rabbit holes, and mm-hmm. this is definitely a rabbit hole. <laughs> so you got to the end of this, you figured it out. Then what? Did you like uh, I published celebrate an article with on a, it. <laughs> you celebrate with a, a curly pepperoni pizza or what? Actually, the, the interesting part with this was I, I, I published an article on this. And then it turns out that a friend of mine from college studies uh, rheology and, and topography. And he sent me an email saying, like, Kenji, like, your article on pepperoni is is dangerously close to my research. On tectonic um, plates or something? Uh, well, it, it, his research is about how different objects alter their shape based on density and, and based on different inputs. So he actually has, like, very sophisticated computer modeling software for this kind of stuff. So he modeled a slice of pepperoni for me <laughs> um, and, and did, sort of built a 3D model and showed how pepperoni curls under various conditions. So... Uh, I, I don't know how any of that is actually really useful to anyone other than um, well, I, I can't think of anybody. You're, you're the only to. person <laughs> in the world who has custom software to map out how pepperoni curls in a hot oven. Uh, this has been elucidating. <laughs> uh, and now I'm hungry for some pizza. Kenji, thank you so much. Thank you. That was our regular science expert, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. When speaking with Kenji about the science of pepperoni, it reminded me that science always starts with a question. Why does matter exist? What lives in the depths of the oceans? Are we alone in the universe? In the kitchen, we ask simpler questions, such as what makes sauces curdle or what makes cheesecake crack? Simpler questions, perhaps, but it's all in the name of science. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Please remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please head to our website, 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to the magazine, watch our TV show, or order our new cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Production assistant, Jackie Nowak. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.